The National Archives podcast series. Philip Henslow, Edward Allain, and the invention of London theatre in the age of Shakespeare. Presented by Grace Iapolo. I want to begin by thanking all of you for coming, thanking the National Archives for the invitation, and thanking Jerry for arranging this. My talk today comes out of the Henslow Allen Digitization Project, which I founded and directed over several years, starting in 2002. We launched it in 2009, and it concerns the single best archive of information about theater history and performance in Shakespeare's period. The single best. And I'll explain to you in a few minutes why it's the single best and why it was kept intact. This website is free to access. The only thing is you can't download images, but you can use all of them instead of trudging out to Dulwich College, which is a lovely place, but it's a very busy school, to look at the originals. You can now see very high-quality images. Um, I'm just going to show you quickly how to use this, and then I'll start my talk. The the, uh, website address is henslow-allen.org.uk, and as I said, it's it's free. The two most interesting parts of the archive are digital essays, and we have some really exciting essays here, including from Museum of London archaeologist Julian Bauscher, who excavated the Rose, which was Henslow's theater. These are short but extremely interesting little essays, and uh, you can also click up while you're reading the essay, the real image, for example. The other exciting part is if you just want to look at the images of fantastic manuscripts of everyday sort of expenses and events in theater. They're all here, for example. Petitions, documents about duels, uh, commissioning plays, and uh, some of the more exciting items here, including the only existing actor's part from the period. This is from a play called Orlando by Robert Greene. And we are still sort of getting information out about this website. We'd love it if you could, if you're working in archives or in history, um, we'd love it, or if you're just interested in the period. So that's our website, and I'm very happy to answer questions about that. But let me start now with my PowerPoint presentation. In his pioneering and still extraordinary four-volume work, The Elizabethan Stage, the great Shakespearean scholar E.K. Chambers offers this assessment of Philip Henslow. I have more than once had occasion to mention Henslow, whose personality stands out, more clearly perhaps than any other, from the stage history of our whole period. Chambers soon makes clear that Haywood's personality stands out because it is distasteful. Chambers eventually brings himself to confess, whether Henslow was a good or bad man seems to me to be a matter of indifference. He was a capitalist. The reason why Chambers felt he needed to make moral judgments about this foundational figure, and Henslow was a foundational figure, in early modern English theater history is tied up with the 300 years of scholars privileging that theater history as Shakespearean instead of early modern. Now, I am a trained Shakespearean. I adore Shakespeare. I've published on Shakespeare. But for many years, Shakespeare's prominence and eminence has displaced all the other people in in early theater history. Chambers made extensive use of the portions of Henslow and Allen's massive theatrical manuscript archive at Dulwich College. Many of these documents had already been transcribed by John Payne Collier, who was, I'm afraid, a notorious forger, but, but kept most of his hands off of the documents at Dulwich, and the great scholar Walter Gregg. In order to make arguments about the building and maintenance of playhouses, the composition of acting companies, the commissioning of dramatists to write plays, the role of the master of the rebels, who was the state censor, and numerous other aspects of early modern theater. 
But Chambers remained very reluctant to admit that Henslow's practices on his own from about the mid-1580s, or in collaboration with his son-in-law, this is a wonderful portrait here you see of Edward Allen, there's no portrait of, of Henslow available, from about 1592 until 1616 were ordinary. That is, what I'm going to tell you is Henslow and Allen invented, in a sense, the profession as an industry. They set the prices, they set the standards, and Shakespeare and his company, often interconnected with Henslow and Allen's, were very competitive, so they had to match each other's costs and expenses and revenues. In fact, Chambers firmly sets Henslow as a ruthless capitalist up against the Burbages, who ran, of course, Shakespeare's company. However, I could refute the charges of this capitalism and its excesses of greed against Henslow and Allen by arguing that Burbage and Shakespeare actually did quite the same. Most of these capitalists, including Shakespeare, plowed at least some of their profits from their enterprises into bailing actors and dramatists. Henslow has records, which I'll show you in a minute, showing how many times he bailed actors and dramatists and other theater personnel from debtor's prison. Because these people were paid piecemeal. They weren't on an annual salary. And they often took out loans and then defaulted on them. And they are sent off to the Marshalsea. And they write pleading letters to Henslow and Allen saying, please bail me, please, if you're a Christian man, bail me. So what you see here is not only is theater a profession of taking in money at the box office, putting on plays, hiring actors, but in a sense doing pastoral care of everyone in this profession. That includes bailing them from debtor's prison. Now the Henslow Allen archive has thousands of pages of manuscripts. 2,000 of those pages have to do with Henslow and Allen's theatrical accounts. When Henslow died in 1616, Allen was still his partner. He's also his son-in-law. Henslow's stepdaughter, Joan, was married to Edward Allen. And Henslow bequeathed his papers as well as his business enterprises to Allen. Now, Allen, being a very shrewd man, when he built Dulwich College, uh, which opened in 1619, he began building it in the early 1610s, was shrewd enough to recognize that his papers were a kind of witness to history. And he insisted in the foundational deed to Dulwich College that all the papers be kept intact in perpetuity. And it is for this reason that only a few items have been carried off over the years by people like John Payne Collier or Edmund Malone, that the 2,000 pages that are unique and have absolutely no parallel have been kept together. There must have been these papers for Shakespeare's company and for all the other acting companies, but they simply weren't kept together. They were dispersed or destroyed. And we can thank Allen because most of what we know about theater in Shakespeare's period comes from this archive, not from Shakespeare's papers. So there is no reason to disagree from what we know about Henslow and Allen with Museum of London archaeologist uh, John, uh, Julian Bauscher's assessment that Henslow was not a ruthless, greedy, and illiterate bully, as some historians have argued. Instead, he was an educated, cultured, and benevolent but prudent theatrical angel. We can extend this to the modern period in saying... Thank you for keeping these documents intact. Henslow exerted great care in establishing, maintaining, and managing his successful theatrical venues for the good of his employees, associates, and customers, as well as his investors. As for Edward Allen, of course, the great actor other than Richard Burbage, he originated roles like Dr. Faustus, Edward II, Tamburlaine. He was a very tall man, very striking. Doesn't bear a lot of relation to Ben Affleck in Shakespeare in Love. But he was tall, as tall as Ben Affleck, unusually tall. As for Edward Allen, as early as 1592, Thomas Nash, the dramatist, stated, his very name, as the name of Ned Allen on the common stage, was able to make an ill matter good. 
As I've discovered in editing Edward Allen's diary, which I'm doing for Oxford University Press, Allen was even more benevolent, charitable, and kind than Henslow, for Allen became a major philanthropist whose Dulwich College, Chapel, and Almshouse have continued to serve the local community for nearly 400 years. If you go to Dulwich Picture Gallery, you'll see next to it the almshouses, which still stand. As historian Sir Richard Baker claimed less than 40 years after Edward Allen's death, Allen was an example of a man who, having gotten his wealth by stage playing, converted it to this pious use, not without a kind of reputation to the society of players. Remarkably, Allen and Henslow were shrewd enough to realize their single and joint archives of muniments, including contracts, leases, deeds, account books, memorandum books, letters, bills, receipts, playhouse documents and other material that charted their theatrical profession from the 1580s to the 1620s should be kept together. This is why I told you that there's a sort of codicil in the foundation documents stating that the archive had to be kept together. So it is the foundation for the first, and I argue, English theater archive in the UK. I think Alan intended it to become a theatrical archive. Documents charting this theater history for other entrepreneurs are now spread over several countries in various government archives, public and private libraries. There are some here, of course, the National Archives. But too many of the documents have been bought, sold, resold, auctioned, re-auctioned, pilfered or bequeathed many times over in the last 400 years. But this archive has been kept together, largely because the keeper of manuscripts at the British Library, George Warner, came in in the 1880s, took a look at all these little documents still folded up in their little packets, moldering in a chest, opened it up and said to the college, these need conservation. So he carted all the documents off to the British Library and spent several years having them uh, preserved, cleaned up, and cataloged. And he cataloged them into many volumes, which they now are bound in. To return to Chambers' apparent distaste for Henslow's capitalist view of theater, I want to argue that their endeavors not only professionalized theater, but turned it into an industry that employed, influenced, touched, or consumed the lives and careers not just of theatrical personnel, but what you'll find in this archive are documents by, from, or about monarchs, chancellors, privy councillors, courtiers, church leaders, foreign ambassadors, local London officials, but even more importantly for those of us who study history of this period, there are documents charting the lives and careers of tailors, washerwomen, scriveners, victuallers, and the men who rode ordinary people across the Thames, which I'll show you in a minute, not to mention all of their families. What I'm going to do now is show you the variety of documents that are in this archive and why they're so important. I'm also going to tell you that I, I talked a lot of these, about a lot of these documents a few months ago at a major international Shakespeare conference full of specialist scholars, including those on theater history. And most of them had never heard of some of this archive or known about these items. So for all the hunting we've done over the last 400 years into documents to find something about Shakespeare's period, these have been sadly neglected. What's the most famous document from this archive is what we call Henslow's Diary, which I'm going to show you the images of here. And that's this account book that over several periods from about a year, from about 1596 to the early 1600s. And in it, he records every single expense and every single loan and every single investment in terms of theater. So he's paying dramatists to write plays. And he gives us the name of the plays and the names of the dramatists. It's an unbelievable resource. There are over 325 plays listed in Henslow's diary, most of which do not survive. So not only do we have their titles, great plays like Crack Me This Nut, have no idea what that's about, 
But who wrote which place and with whom? Because if they're collaborating, he, t he says, I paid Decker and Middleton and Haywood or whoever to write these plays. And he tells us whether the play's been finished or not finished in terms of making a final payment. So that's exciting. Also in Henslow's diary are the names of actors. He's signing on as kind of um, covenanted. He calls them covenanted, meaning they, they perform exclusively for him. We have information about his paying the master of the revels, which I find fascinating, the censor. He's paying the master of the revels after, er, quarterly. From what we thought, the master of the revels had to read every single play before performance and approve it. And there's a huge study in our period of the Master of the Rebels. However, what's interesting here, he's paying the Master of the Rebels quarterly. So it seems to me that Henslow had a good relationship with the Master of the Rebels, that the Master of the Rebels was accommodating and expected to be paid eventually, and perhaps wasn't as severe as we thought he was. There's also information I'll show you briefly, but I just want to point out some of the more exciting bits of this archive, which people still haven't much recognized. Okay, this is a typical page from Henslow's diary, and of course, if you went to our website and looked up MS7, 8 Verso, you'd find this page. And there is a great edition by Reg Folks. If you want to take a printed edition of Henslow's diary and sit page by page with our images, you can certainly do that. Okay, so we have daily receipts in the Henslow's diary of, that Henslow took from performance. So, for example, there's an entry here for Titus and Andronicus on 6 February 1594. This is about the only evidence we have that Shakespeare had a connection with Henslow, mostly because Henslow only mentions dramatist names from 1597. And by 1594, Shakespeare was firmly in the company of the Chamberlain's men, which is a rival. So he's not working for Henslow after 1594. But this is one of the few records we have of what box office receipts were for Titus and Andronicus, or Titus Andronicus. And if you read through these receipts, you'll see it made a fair amount of money <laughs> but not as much as Marlowe's plays. So you see expenditures that Henslow made on behalf of the admirals or, the Wor or Worcester's men because he was a money lender to these two companies. And he would advance money to people he was commissioning and then get paid back by the acting company, usually after the play had brought in some money. The payments and repair for two playhouses, this is amazing, the Rose and the Fortune. We don't have these records for the Globe. Most of the ones we have for the Globe come from this archive. And notes on hiring actors, payments uh, to the Master of the Rebels. So this is what's so exciting. And we've known this for years. People have trawled through Henslow's diary, especially since there's been a modern edition from 1960 by Reg Folks. There was an earlier edition by Walter Gregg. But the point about Henslow's diary is most scholars flip to the back and look up Titus Andronicus, and they read the one line and say, oh, it's in Henslow's diary. They do not read Henslow's diary cover to cover, which I had to do for this project. Oh, and the stuff that's in here is amazing. Just amazing. But I'm going to show you some more exciting items. This is from Manuscripts 1, the volume called Manuscripts 1, which Warner put all the theatrical correspondence into, in, into Manuscripts 1, and items having to do with actors and dramatists. So this is a, an incredibly unique record, a deed of sale from 1589 to sell a set of playbooks to Henslow and Allen. For 37 pounds, 10 shillings, huge amount of money, in this period, a dramatist was paid five pounds per play. It rises to about almost 20 pounds by about 1616. But 37 pounds is a significant amount of money. And dramatists, when they sold a play to an acting company, lost all financial rights in it. There's no copyright. So they sold it on, and it's not theirs anymore. 
usually the acting company keeps it and keeps it in the repertory. But if, for example, this man probably went broke with his acting company, he sold off his stock. So this is an incredibly interesting record. Now here's another interesting one about the London plague frequently closed London theaters because it was too dangerous. What we know about provincial actors was they went out to the provinces when the theaters were closed due to plague. This is professional actors. And here we have this very, very sad story of Lord Pembroke's men, of which Shakespeare was a part at one period. And they, have had, they cannot save their charges with travel, that is, with playing in the public, uh, in the provinces, and were fain to pawn their apparel for their charge, for their expenses. They're selling their costumes. This is, this is sort of the sad beginnings of early modern theater. Now, we don't quite know what this is, but it's very exciting. This is on the back of a letter, an ordinary letter from Henslow to Allen. And as you know, if you work in manuscripts, letters are often what we call a bifolium. It's a sheet of paper folded once. You usually write the letter on the first two pages, and then you fold it up into a little packet and write the address on the outside. This is on the inner recto. And we don't know, it says an embroidered carpet. For us, this signifies a scene design. We assume it's a scene design. The handwriting is Henslow's. You'll see the ink's a slightly different color. We don't have scenic design from this period. So this, again, is an incredibly exciting piece of information that we find in this archive. This is the only extant costume inventory list of the entire period. This is absolutely amazing. It's received some attention. Most of the people who've worked on Henslow's papers are people like Chambers or, or W.W. Gregg or G.E. Bentley slightly later in the 1940s. So you see it's divided into columns, cloaks, gowns, antique or old suits, jerkins or jerkins, and doublets, and French hose and Venetians. These are breeches. So this tells you the amount of inventory. It's absolutely huge. Every single entry is a different item. There are one or two slight forgeries in here by Collier where he tried to insert things like Romeo's cloak. But we, there's a, there have been two great scholars, the Janet and Arthur Freeman, who've done a great deal of work on Collier's forgeries, so we can spot them immediately. Collier did have access to the archive in the 1830s and 40s. But this is amazing. And we, what we find from Henslow and Allen's archive is companies spent more money on costumes than on actors and plays. Of course, they, they're not using sets in Shakespeare's period or Henslow's period. They are using properties. And they spent a lot of money on things like swords, shields, all sorts of sort of decorative things. But the great amount of money is going into costumes. They're made of velvet, satin, beaver fur. Allen's very proud of buying a beaver hat. This is one of the few surviving playhouse plots of the period. There are only about six or seven of these, and there are only a few that are available. This is only the top part, portion of it. The image is so big, you'd have to go on the website to look at the rest of it. It goes quite down a ways. This is from a play called The Second Part of the Seven Deadly Sins. And there is a play called The First Part of the, called The Seven Deadly Sins. This nice little peg here, this hole, we, we photographed this against the black, is where it was stuck up on a peg backstage. And what this does is give you actor, uh, characters, entrances, and exits. That's all it does. Remember, actors are doing a play every night. They're doing a different play, or every afternoon. And a play is only done once every six weeks or so. It's not like a kind of London run where they run a play for six weeks. So they need a lot of help remembering their, not only their lines, but their entrances and exits. What's exciting about this one is Richard Burbage's name appears in this as one of the characters. So he took on one of the roles. Even though Burbage is associated with Shakespeare's company, 
before he's associated with the Chamberlain's men, he's working for Allen and Henslow. Now, this is one of the most important documents we have from Shakespeare's period. This is the agreement to write, to, uh, to build the Rose Theater, or Playhouse, as it was known. And this has undergone a great deal of study, especially by the Museum of London Ar um, archaeologists. I mentioned Julian Bauscher. They use this to track the neighborhood around the Rose, and they use this in their excavations. Remember, the Rose was found, I think, in the early 1980s. And Julian Bauscher has a wonderful book, a couple of wonderful books now. He's just published another one about his findings. But this is incredibly exciting because what it tells us is this document, how the stage was to be built, what the sight lines are supposed to be like, how much the stage is supposed to be thrust out. It has a roof or a cover because remember they're performing outdoors in London weather. This also required opening out the galleries on either side. This is, this is, you know, if you work in documents, you know this is a typical sort of muniment. But for us who study theater history, it's amazing. We don't have this for the first theater Shakespeare worked in in Shoreditch. We don't have this for the Globe. We do have it for the Rose. And Shakespeare and his company, of course, performed at the Rose. It was one of the major theaters from 1587. It was eventually torn down. Now, this is an even more interesting document if you study Shakespeare. Henslow and Allen made a lot of money off the rose, but it was too small. It was also on the South Bank, where it's starting to get congested, as you know, with a lot of other theaters. So they decided to build another theater called The Fortune, sort of in, it's sort of in Shoreditch, north of the river. Henslow was extremely shrewd, and my supposition is either he was offered a, a cheap piece of land, or he knew he'd have less control from the city officers the first theater, purpose-built theater called the Theater in Shoreditch, was subjected to a lot of censorship and complaints. And that, this is why Shakespeare's company packed up the theater board by board and nail by nail and took it across the Thames and rebuilt it as the Globe. But by this time, 1600, something's going on in this neighborhood and Henslow knows it's a good place to put up a theater. Why it's so exciting for Shakespeareans? It tells us the size of the Globe. The fortune was to be set square 80 feet each way without, and 50 feet, 55 feet each way within, and to be three stories in height and built with good, strong, and substantial new timber. Because what they say is, in fact, in this uh, document is, we want it to look like the globe in this respect, but not in this respect. We want this changed. So they use the globe as a model. And I can only assume that Henslow and Allen sat down in the globe and said, you know, that doesn't work, the pillars are wrong here, the canopy's wrong, and so when they went to build the fortune, they said, we don't want it to look like this, we don't want it to look like that. So this is a, a sign of real interconnection with the dramatists, with actors, and with the people who fund them. This is the exciting part. This is the close from that muniment, that the playhouse should be built in the manner and fashion of the said house called the Globe. These statements and those asking for changes suggested, as I said, that Hensel and Allen had examined the globe closely. This idea that Shakespeare's company was over here doing everything they wanted, and Henslow and Allen and everyone else were over on the side, and they had no interconnection is absolutely wrong. They lived side by side, they worked side by side, they went to the same church, St. Saviour's, which is now Southern Cathedral. Shakespeare buried his brother in Southern Cathedral, at Southern Cathedral now, while Henslow was one of the church wardens. So the idea that these people did not mix and meet and socialize is completely wrong. Which is what people would like to have us think. They want us to think that there's something incredibly unique about Shakespeare. The other exciting thing about the fortune contract, you flip it over, and there's a list of expenses while it's being built. 
This to me is absolutely amazing. I showed this to Andy Gurr, who's my senior colleague at Reading, a great expert on theater history, and he told me this was more exciting to him than the front side of the document. So as Peter Street is making all the arrangements to have it built, Henslow's listing every single expense and change he had to make. This is really exciting. Now, we know that Henslow and Allen's acting company, the Admiral's Men, was one of two companies allowed to act at court. The other company, of course, is Shakespeare's. So we see in 1600 that Shakespeare's company has the same status as the company, the acting company, run by Henslow and Allen. This is an important thing to keep in mind if you want to think about theater history. Because what we continually hear from Shakespeareans, and of course I'm one of them, is that Shakespeare's company was so brilliant and so fantastic and so excellent and so wonderful that they were the most important and the most prominent company of the period. They were one of two prominent. There are several other acting companies you've probably never heard of who don't get this privilege. But this is this wonderful document saying that he has permission to build the fortune according to the queen's request. So you see here the kind of power that Henslow and Allen have. So again, this is that document that requiring the justices of Middlesex to permit the three companies of players to the king, queen, and prince to exercise their plays at the Globe, the Fortune, and the Curtain in Hollywell. There was one other company that was allowed to act, eventually became these two companies. So you see from the highest reaches, you have members of Privy Council, you have the Queen, you have monarchs taking an interest in what happens in theater. As I showed you earlier, this is the only surviving actor script from the period. You may have seen this before. It's quite famous. It's the script for Edward Allen, who played the lead in Orlando Furioso, of course, based on Ariosto's poem. What's interesting about this, if you don't know from the actors, this is the only one, actors did not get an entire script of a play. They got their lines and a cue line. That's it. Because actors had a tendency to sell plays for money to printers. So to keep them from doing that, or to taking it to another company, if you bought a play from Shakespeare, your company was the only one allowed to act that play unless you resold the play. So actors were only given their, their parts and the cue lines. What we know about this, because it's written in long strips, which you can see on the website, is that it was probably clipped together. They did use pins in this period. I've seen manuscripts pinned together. They pinned them or they glued them together. So it was in a kind of a scroll. Is this typical of the period? We don't know. This is the only one we have. There are scripts available from the Restoration period after 1660. But this is so exciting for us because you have occasionally Alan writing a little note in the margin about being a bit more emotional. But what you don't see is Alan is not rewriting the text. He's not changing the dialogue. He's not acting as an author. He's strictly an actor. And he knows where to sort of say something like he pulls his hair. But this is an absolutely wonderful document. This is only one sheet of several. Two items I have happen to like, but I tend to pass over because it's in the category of animal cruelty nowadays. Henslow and Allen realized by about 1600 that the real money to be made was in blood sports, not in theater. They made a fortune over controlling blood sports. And blood sports was animal baiting, extremely cruel. The bears were usually blinded and often their teeth were ground down. They were chained to a stake and dogs were set upon them. And people, of course, took bets. 
It was an incredibly popular sport. I'm now editing, as I told you, Edward Allen's diary, and he mentions a few times where he took the animals to court so that James could watch the bear baiting. So everybody watched it. But they realized by about 1600 the real money was to be made in bear baiting. So that's what they applied for the patent from the, or patent as you say here, from the queen and she turned them down. And when James came to the throne in 1603, he gave them the patent to run the blood sports. And he often took the bears on parade. Allen eventually had a traveling bear ward. So he'd take them, there are records at Dulwich of him taking them to places like Berkshire. And he takes them around. It's what I find incredibly sad is that Alan is paying money for capons and ale and whatever, and he's feeding the bears bread dipped in suet. That's it. You can imagine the poor animals. But one other thing they were allowed to do, which is quite funny, sort of, they had the because they used large dogs for bear baiting, they had permission to go all over the UK, the kingdom, and pick up dogs at no expense. They could pick up any dog they wanted. They had a free warrant. So there's this wonderful case. It's quite funny. I think it's, it's really tells you quite a bit about the period. One of their agents was in Chester, and he saw a big dog, because people kept big dogs for protection, and he picked it up. And he was attacked by people in the street who were beating him. And he and his associate were arrested. And they're writing letters to Henslow saying, get us out, get us out. And they're mostly complaining about the woman who beat them over the head with a cudgel. It was obviously her dog. So Henslow writes this indignant letter to the authority in Chester saying, let my men out. Don't you know I have the warrant to pick up any dog I like in this kingdom? In this case, it's very happily resolved. The two men get out. What happened to the dog, I don't know. But there's another case in which they picked up the dog of an earl. I believe he was an earl or a duke. And he was not pleased. So he writes a letter to Henslow saying, your men picked up my dog. And Henslow has to write an ingratiating letter saying, I'm so sorry, you'll have it back immediately. I'm so sorry. But this idea that because you have a warrant from the king for bear baiting, you can go around the country picking up anybody's dog is wonderful. If you know Ben Jonson, the great poet, you'll know that there are very few existing manuscripts in his own handwriting of his works. This is the only existing manuscript I've seen so far of somebody else's works. Johnson was a, quite an egocentric man, brilliant writer, but very much concerned with his own glory. This is his own, in his own handwriting, two poems, one he translated by, from Marshall and one he wrote by Sir Henry Wooten, The Character of a Happy Life. And if, as I said, if you know Johnson, you know that he's quite competitive. The idea that he's written out Wooten's poem and in such a beautiful hand, this is again on the website, and there's a, the second part of that Wooden poems on the, on the verso. Johnson said at various points in his life that this is one of his favorite poems, the Wooden, the character of a happy life. What is this doing at Dulwich College? Good question. Johnson spent some years in Henslow's employ. He also murdered, in a duel, an actor Henslow was quite fond of, named Gabriel Spencer. And Henslow has a sort of pitiful letter don't remember I have it in this, in this site, saying, oh, that bricklayer, Ben Johnson murdered Gabriel Spencer. However, Johnson was again employed after this incident by Henslow to write plays, including a play called Richard Crookback, which does not survive. Obviously, it was written as a kind of competition to Richard III. Henslow's relationship with Johnson may have been strained, but Johnson and Allen became, I'm sure of it, quite firm friends. They acted in a number of entertainments in front of the king together. And I suspect that this document was a gift to Allen on the opening of Dulwich College in 1619.
because in this period, in the 1610s, um, Johnson was doing some of these for good friends of his. But we simply don't know what it's doing there. Many Johnson experts don't know it's there. Though I just want to tell you a bit about the reach of Henslow and Allen. There is this idea in Shakespeare's period that officials, especially church officials and local officials, loathed actors, loathed theater, thought of it as disgusting and vagrant. And it is true that there was an act against vagrancy in 1572, which we see as the beginning of theater, because it said actors had to belong to a company that was patronized by an aristocrat or a monarch, otherwise they were not allowed to act. One of the most notorious people who wrote against theater was Stephen Gosson. And as far as we know, Stephen Gosson was being truthful when he writes tracts like School of Abuse, in which he says absolutely vile things about theater. It attracts prostitutes, it attracts vagrants, it attracts pickpockets, it's seditious, it's lewd, it's disgusting, it's vulgar. What's so interesting about these documents, not only, and I'll show you Dunn's in a, the letter to Dunn in a minute, Stephen Gosson's has three letters in the Dulwich Archive that he wrote to Alan, in which he's incredibly affectionate, in which he's very friendly, and he asks for Alan's help. In fact, he wants one of the people from his parish, St. Baltov, one of the young men, to be admitted to Dulwich College. So this idea that Stephen Gosson and other people attacking theater were serious, that they loathed theater, that it was something vile, isn't supported by a document like this. More personal, but very, very touching in the bottom, Joan Allen, who was married to Edward Allen, was the stepdaughter, considered daughter in that period, of Henslow. She dies after a long and happy marriage, and a few months later, Allen marries uh, Constance Dunn, the daughter of John Dunn, the poet, and Dean of St. Paul's. She's about 40 years younger than Allen. Obviously, there's, a, uh, there's an entry in his uh, diary about when he met her and they had dinner together with a group of friends. My supposition is he, she was attractive, she was young, and this was his last chance to try to have a child. He had no children with his first wife. However, Dunn, who also appears to have been a, a friend of Alan's, there are a number of instances in Alan's diary in which he mentions going to hear Dunn preach in Camberwell, a couple of instances where they have dinner together. Dunn seems to have taken this marriage very badly. Constance was supposedly his favorite daughter, and he refused to send on her dowry after the marriage. And of course, I suspect that he didn't attend the marriage either. So here's a letter in which uh, Alan's writing to Constance Dunn, uh, about Constance Dunn, to her father, saying that there were many unkind passages in the letter that Alan had received from Dunn. Alan complains here of Dunn's unkind, unexpected, and undeserved denial of the common courtesy afforded to a friend. I mean the loan of useful monies. If you read through this archive, as I have, you don't see nasty letters from Alan. He was an incredibly nice man. He spent Christmas and his own birthday and anniversaries feeding the poor in his house. He was incredibly charitable. When somebody needed money, even people he met on the street, he gave them money. And he was always kind and polite. This is the only time you see a sort of flash of anger here. Of course, he didn't, li he didn't live much longer after this marriage. And Constance did not inherit Dulwich College because it had been set up as a foundation. And if Alan had had a child with Constance, there probably would not have been a Dulwich College. So it's, it's been an interesting sort of result here. This is an example of something every day that you don't expect to see in Dulwich College having to do with theater. This is a petition from the Thames Ferryman. Remember, during periods of plague and the theaters are closed, people are not being rowed across the Thames to go to the theater. So the ferrymen are starving from lack of wages. And these are all their signatures. Some of them just make an X, of course, because they can't sign their name. 
and someone else writes their name in. And this is ordinary, everyday people who are writing to the Lord Admiral, begging him to reopen the theaters so that they can work again. It's really touching because they talk about how their families are starving, their poor wives and children, and you can see all these men brought into a scrivener's office. The scrivener's writing out the document, probably, and all these men are brought in, probably, to the office, unless uh, Henslow took the... It, it would have to have been verified, so they would probably have come to the scrivener's office. And you see them painstakingly writing out their name. So this is the way that ordinary people you see have an impact or were impacted upon in a sense by theater and the theater industry. This is one of the nicer things I think that Henslow does. I told you earlier that he bailed dramatists. There is a very famous poet and dramatist named Thomas Lodge you may have heard of. And at some point he defaulted on uh, a loan from a loan, sort of a loan shark. There were not official moneylenders of course in this period and they people would set themselves up as moneylenders. And I guess that Lodge had used Henslow as a kind of guarantor. And Lodge has absconded. And Henslow is getting several threats of arrest from the man who brought the complaint against Lodge for the money. And if, if Henslow won't pay the money, he's going to be arrested. <coughs> and instead of paying the money, or instead of collaring Lodge and pulling him back and saying, look, pay the money, Henslow keeps saying, oh, I don't know where he is. He's gone. It's nothing to do with me. I find this incredibly loyal. This is a case in which Henslow's being threatened with arrest. He could have very easily gotten Lodge into trouble or allowed Lodge to be picked up. So what I'm arguing is that Henslow again refuses to divulge the address of Lodge and claims he is, as I hear, passed beyond the seas. He's gone. Without a doubt, he knew where Lodge was, but he's not making him face this complaint. So you see here that Henslow, instead of being a kind of greedy capitalist and ruthless, as Chambers would argue, seems to have been fairly benevolent and protective of people who worked in the theater industry. I just have a few more items to show you. This, again, tells you about ordinary people. This is a census. Henslow and Allen worked a lot with the local officials in Southwark, and they owned masses of property. One of the reasons Henslow, I believe, was a church warden at Southwark was that he gets a lot of property deal tips from the other church wardens. Whenever he hears from somebody that there's property for sale or for lease, he buys it. And so this is the census from 1609 of residents in the Liberty who were required to pay towards the relief of the poor. And even more interesting to me at the bottom is an, a document from Southwark about what women, single women, are allowed or not allowed to do and what they can work as. So you have here recommendations how the liberty of the clink should handle victuallers, tapsters, inmates, drunks, and women who take in washing, help other women in childbed, or work as maids. These seem to be in the three professions of the women in Southwark besides prostitute. So you have women in childbed helping other women, washerwomen, and maids. And of course, these people would have been personally known to Henslow or Allen because they're often the landlords. This is how actors and dramatists work together to create plays. You have two examples here of actors who've had a play read to them or discussed, and they go to Henslow and say, we heard about these two plays, we would really like to have them. Will you pay these two men? So it, it, the idea that Henslow forced people to write plays, or that he told people which plays to write, or instructed them on what they should be performing is not true. So actors and dramatists are sitting around saying, oh, I've got a play for you. Oh, it's really good. It's called John Agant or whatever it's called. And so these are documents that Henslow kept asking him to pay for commissioning these plays. Again, this is an outline of a play at the top, which we find in this record. We have ideas about another play called 
a few lines of a play written on the back of scraps. So you're getting literary text and you're getting the outlines of plays in this archive. An example of a, one of the only contracts we have of an, a dramatist with Henslow or anyone else on how much he's being paid to write a play and when it should be delivered and what it's about. So this is a legal document. It's a memorandum that becomes a legal document written in Latin. Again, this is items from Henslow's diary. What's interesting is he writes an X across the ones that get canceled. And here you have Robert Wilson is, is writing his own name in there. And in fact, this entry in Henslow's diary is in Wilson's handwriting. So the suggestion is this is a contract for a play. Wilson's making the negotiations. And Henslow's saying, sure, write what you want. I'll give you what you want. So this idea of him, Henslow, or Burbage's, for example, saying, you have to write this play. It has to be about this, and I'm only going to pay you that, is wrong. Dramatists are saying, here's what I'll write for you. It ha it'll be like this, like this, and this is how much I'm, you're, I'm going to charge you. So again, this is a wonderful contract. This is one of the few surviving manuscripts. Well, there are about 140 that I've seen of dramatic manuscripts. That's my subject. I work on dramatic manuscripts. This is the only one that's been digitized for free. If you ever want to look at what a real manuscript of a 16th century play looks like, early 17th century play, it's a play called The Telltale. And uh, this is a typical format. What's interesting up here in the corner, somebody's written mine. So I suspect that was his role. This is an entire play. This is not an actor's part. But about 100 play manuscripts were left to Dulwich College in the 1680s. There's only one there now, this one. And I've been spending a lot of time in the past several years looking for the rest of them. And I think I can trace a lot of them somewhere at the British Library. One of them might be here. I haven't decided about the one here. This is Edward Allen's diary. And this is very exciting because you've ne probably never heard of it. And it lists everyday occurrences besides how much he spends on wine and nails and timber and cheese and sugar. It's his daily account book. He writes things in the margin like, at 2 AM, Queen Anne died this morning. Or, I went to the Queen's funeral today. I went to Somerset House to see the hearse. The Fortune burned down today. Whitehall burned down today. This is his diary from 1617 to 1622. And I'm doing an edition of this. should be out in hopefully a year or so. It's a lot of work. But it also tells us, for example, how much paper cost. I work with a lot of experts on paper, scribal work, manuscripts. And they were astounded to find that Allen gives the price of how much paper cost by ream, by choir, coarse paper, fine paper. A friend of mine, Heather Wolf, at the Folger Library works on embro um, embroidery floss used to tie up letters. And I sent her a, a price last week for how much she paid for a little skein of embroidery floss. You don't really get these sorts of records. It's really exciting here. A few more images. This is four in the morning, Queen Anne died. I went with my wife to Somerset House to see the hearse of Queen Anne. And the, uh, the Queen's funeral was this day. Why is he writing these things? He performed in front of the Queen several times. And that's a play I've been working on. This is basically the last of these images. But what I wanted to stress today is that for all of us who work in manuscripts and original records and documents, we think that we found everything there is to find. Digitization for us is an incredible godsend because it shows us the things we haven't been able to find that we wouldn't really been able to find. We can't search this website yet. The next step for us is to put transcriptions on and searches so that you can do indexing and things like that. But what we wanted to stress with this website is as wonderful as Shakespeare is, as brilliant as Shakespeare is, he's one of many people within the theatrical, what I would call industry of this period, who is, in fact, part of a large interconnected world. 
Thank you for your uh, interest. If you have questions, I can take a few. This podcast was recorded on the 27th of September, 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>